0: This Sunday service we have Phil Kingham speaking from the Book of Revelation. Morning. Morning. So weather getting to you. Oh, it's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> really lovely to see you guys again. Um, if you can if you've got a Bible with you and you'd like to open it, the book of Revelation. I think I have a PowerPoint that might come up on the screen in a moment. Oh there we go. So um, I've been doing a fair amount of time over the last little while studying through the book of Revelation, um, partly for my personal things and also because uh, I think it's important at the moment and it's stuff we've been doing at church and um, so it's quite hard for me to get my head out of it at the moment, so I'm afraid that's what you're lumbered with today. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5 and look at the whole chapter, so 14 verses. If you're not sure where Revelation is... It's at the end. (laughs) Go to the end of your Bible and turn backwards until you get to chapter 5, you'll be there. Okay. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. "'Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. "'He had seven horns and seven eyes.' "'Scary-looking lamb, isn't it? "'Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. "'He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. "'And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders "'fell down before the lamb. "'Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, "'which are the prayers of the saints.' And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon ten thousand, sorry, thousands upon thousand, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Do I hear an Amen this morning? Amen. Okay, so we're having a look at Revelation 5 this morning. I've got a few bits and pieces up here that I need to make sure I don't lose. Okay, Um, but I want to start by either reminding or or making clear um, three truths as I see them in the book of Revelation. The purpose of this passage, as in the whole book, is to reveal Jesus Christ. Okay, if you're, into use, if you're used to seeing Revelation YouTube videos on the end of the world, you're missing the point. The whole point of the book of Revelation is to show us more about Jesus. In the, in the Old Testament, we get Jesus hidden, concealed, but demonstrated through the, the people of Israel. In the Gospels, you get him made clear as a man. Here we see him in glory. Okay, Reve- Revelation is specifically that. John introduces the book as the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Okay, So that is what this book is about. If anyone wants to tie you up in knots about other stuff, just tell them to go away. Okay, this is meant meant to tell you about Jesus, and uh, because of that, uh, yeah, I'll I'll get there, okay. So secondly, John is describing to his readers what he can see from heaven. There are four unique pieces of scripture or styles of scripture. There's historic, which looks at what is happening and what has happened. It is historical progress scripture. Okay, then there is prophetic scripture which is about standing and looking forward into the future usually not very far but sometimes a long way and then there are the praise books which are about looking up which is psalms and ecclesiastes and those things and 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 lots of the books lots of the songs bits of isaiah bits of lamentations looking upwards and looking at the glory of God, and speaking of the glory of God. So they're from an earthly perspective, but looking towards heaven. And then there are the apocalyptic scriptures, which are like uh, Zechariah, and uh, bits of Ezekiel, bits of Isaiah, where the, the writer is lifted in the spirit to the heavenly realm, and he's looking down, he's looking both at heaven, what he can see in heaven, but he's also looking at earth, the impact of what is happening from heaven on earth. Is that clear? Are you with me? Say yes, Phil. Good. Just check in. Okay. So John is describing, this is apocalyptic literature. He is lifted into heaven. It says, I I was in the Lord. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And that's the perspective he's writing from. He's describing heaven. He's describing various scenarios in heaven, but he's also describing their impact on earth. But he's writing from a heavenly perspective. Thirdly, these events that he is describing are not fictional. This is my perspective. Okay. They're not fictional. They're not allegorical, they're not just spiritual truths. He is seeing something and trying to describe it. They are hard to understand because he's seeing spiritual things and trying to describe them to plebs like us. Okay, He's trying to describe them in earthly language. So they're hard to understand, but they're not just spiritual truths that have a practical practical application. He is describing real events that he can see but they're really tricky to describe. Now, in this passage, uh, Revelation 5, there are three main things: a throne, a scroll, and uh, can anyone say that? Lamb, yeah. yeah. Okay. There is a lion that looks like a lamb. What is a lion that is a lamb? Okay. We'll get there in a minute. So there is three three elements to this scripture. There is a throne, a scroll that is sealed with seven seals, and a lion-stroke lamb that opens the scroll. So I'm going to try, because I've said this is all about Jesus, I want to try and fly through the, the, the throne and the scroll, and then we'll get to spend a little bit of time on the lion and the lamb. And then I might get you to sing an old song. Are you excited? Yeah. You don't sound very excited to me. <laughs> okay, so let's have a look. The throne. So this is a continuation Okay, John is describing the throne of God in heaven. He first of all talks to the seven churches and describes Jesus' relationship with the seven churches of Asia Minor. Okay, And then he goes on to describe the throne of God in heaven. And uh, the throne of God, John says about this in Revelation 4, he said it is beautiful, it is awesome, and it is surrounded by four mighty angelic creatures, four mighty angelic cherubim, and 24 Elders on thrones, okay? Not going to go into the details. That's uh, Revelation 4. You can ask me about that afterwards if you want. So first of all, in Revelation 4, he talks about this throne with the four living creatures, the four cherubim. They have six wings each, okay? These are not fluffy white angels. These are serious, um, terrifying beings. Uh, The Bible first describes them in in, uh, Genesis as guarding the way to the tree of life, okay? But here they surround the throne. And then there are the 24 elders surrounding the throne in other thrones. So they're all the way around the throne. And John's vision begins to pan out. That's the way Revelation works. His vision moves, okay? And it pans out, and you begin to see that it includes now a 100 million angels. I don't know whether these are the fluffy wing variety, but actually they sing, and their song is magnificent. And so you get this glorious picture spreading out. Let me just try and um, get this to work. And, and you begin to see the increase of the dominion of this throne. Okay, First of all, you see that it is the throne over the angels. Then it's the throne over the rulers and the elders in the world. And then it's the throne over every angel. And then suddenly John says, And I heard under heaven every creature joining in this song. And this is important for us to realize. When the Bible talks about Jesus, it talks about one who sits on the throne in heaven. And all of the angels bow down to him. Uh, the big mighty angels, all of the elders of, of, of human beings bow down before him, all of every angel bows down and, and every created creature under heaven. Can anyone think of anything that wasn't included? So his dominion is over everything. Okay, Is there anything that he doesn't rule? You see how this is the revelation about Jesus. This is telling us who he is. This is the Jesus that we see meek and mild, born as a baby in the Gospels, but in here we see him unveiled in all of his glory. And John, his friend, is on his face. So this is the throne of heaven. Now, on the throne, there is the Father, or God Almighty, and he's holding this scroll. And it says that there were seven seals and John wept and wept and wept because he could not, no one could be found worthy who was open the scroll. So what is this scroll? Now I'm just going to tell you what I think it is because it makes sense to me. This scroll represents the purposes and the judgments of God for this age that you and I live in. We were made, human beings were created, but this age that we live in is not eternal. It is not an eternal age This is temporary. It has a beginning and it will have an end. And God will one day wrap it up. And this scroll represents the judgments and the purposes and the plans and the mercies of God for this age. At the end of the age, he will wrap it up and complete it. His judgments will be pronounced, the harvest examined, the wheat will be gathered in, and the straw and chaff burned. Now, it tells us that this scroll was written on both sides. So what does that mean? What does it mean that it has two sides? It's written on both sides because God's purposes and plans are twofold. First of all, his plans and purposes are to bring righteousness and to righteous fulfillment, to justice all things. He is a just God. You can't change that about him. His mercy doesn't change his justice. His justice is absolute. It's part of who he is. But he's also merciful. Because on this scroll is written both the judgments and the mercies of God. This is why it is sealed. It is sealed because God's righteous judgment against sin and unrighteousness and God's love and desire for mercy for who? Everyone. God's intent is that all should come to repentance and a knowledge of salvation. There's no one left out. His desire is to bring mercy to all people. And only one who is able to fulfill both justice and the mercy of God is worthy of opening it. It's not just the judge that can open the scroll. It's not just someone who's nice that can open the scroll, but someone who in himself has fulfilled that which gives him authority to bring both the mercy and the judgments of God at one. Are you with me? Yeah? That's three of you. Good. Well done. Okay. So um, many of you, all of you, I suspect, will know Martin Mannion, okay? But he used to use this story about a bus driver. I have no idea how apocryphal it was. But he, he used to say, imagine that he was driving the 329, down from Enfield to Palmer's Green. You know, Enfield is where, you know, is is a really good place. Palmer's Green is where God lives. And um, (coughs) that's just kidding. Uh, And and so uh, he's driving the bus and imagine, right, he says that we get trained as bus drivers, that there are two rules. First of all, we're there for the customer. In other words, we provide a service. We're not Uh, We're not the the ones who are the focus of our service. The customer is the one who is the focus of our service. We're there to be kind and nice and gentle to people. You can remind a bus driver about this when you see him, okay? This is the first rule. And then he says the second rule, nobody gets a freebie. Okay? It's a service, but it must be paid for. If you want to ride on the bus, you have to pay to ride on the bus. Okay? It costs to pay the driver, so therefore it costs the, the customer. So he said, imagine I'm driving down green lanes on the 329, and I stop, and there's someone there, and they say, Here, mate, let me on. I haven't got any cash, but can you let me on? And he says, okay, um, all right, get on. And on he gets, and uh, he has fulfilled The first commandment to be kind, to provide a service for the customer. But he says as he comes down to Palmer's Green, if an inspector gets on and checks who's on, he will have been found to have broken the second of the rules and probably be summarily dismissed. So I said, okay then, so there's another way of doing it. Imagine I'm driving down the road and I see this lady. She's got 24 kids, okay, three kids, okay, and she's tired, exhausted, and she said, please can you let me on? I've left my purse at home. And he said, no, no, and uh, sorry, it's a service. You've got to pay for it. I'm fulfilling the second rule. And uh, she pleads with him and begs, and no, no, he's implacable. And so he fulfills the second rule, but he's broken the first. He said there really is only one way to do it. He said that is if the lady says, please can you let me on? And he says, all right, love, on you get." And he takes his own card out of his pocket and puts it on the scanner and pays for her passage. That way, he fulfills both the mercy and grace and the judgments and the justice of the system. So this scroll was in the father's right hand sealed with seven seals seven in revelation just means completely it is completely sealed when it talks about the seven spirits it's talking about the completeness of the holy spirit when it's talking about the seven bowls of judgment and the seven trumpets it's talking about their completeness okay it means they're finally wrapped up there's not anything you don't you know god doesn't say one two three four five oh and we need them seven okay it is the completeness of god's plans and so God, the Father, has the scroll in his, ho- in his hand, but he can't open it. He is unwilling to commit to judgment anyone who has not been provided with a way to escape judgment. See, that's how God is. This is the scroll of his purposes. He is both fully just and utterly merciful. There's some lovely words that describe God's character in the Old Testament. It's a lovely Hebrew word, chesed, which we translate as uh, loving kindness in the King James or just mercy in the NIV, which is a bit lame, isn't it, really? It's like mercy. Okay, Loving kindness. This describes God's heart to us. God's justice and his loving kindness. But Jesus says this. He says there is a time and it will come to an end where God will open the scroll. Jesus will open the scroll. And both the mercies and the judgments of God will be fulfilled. You see, it's not us who con—it's not God who condemns us. It's us who condemn us by refusing his mercy. Jesus said this, I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I will not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him on the last day. It's God's mercy that will judge us. It is our our inability or unwillingness or our pride to accept that mercy. That is what judges us. That's what judges humanity. That's what condemns unrighteous humanity, is when we are faced with the mercy of God and we say, Nope! I do not want to get off the throne myself. I will not let you sit on the throne of my life. I will not let you sit on the throne of heaven. It may have dominion over every living creature, but it's not ruling over my house. That is what condemns us. you see i am um, I used to work a long time ago in my early twenties for a guy in my family is a farmer. I come from a kind of a farming-ish community. There's a few farmers in my family, and uh, my uh, a relative of ours, Ken Green, I used to work for him, and he taught me how to drive a tractor, and um, I almost wrecked it a few times. But um, I remember that the year I first went to harvest for him, we were combining, we were harvesting barley, and he'd walk out into the field and I'd say, is it ready, you know, are going to harvest today? And he'd run his hand through the barley and say, no, not today, boy. Okay, tomorrow. Are we, no, not today, boy. And then on the third day, no, not today, boy. And, uh, and, and it would be like that. He, he knew just by running his hand through the grain as to whether it was, you know, nowadays they have moisture things, but he knew, he knew when it was ready. And then suddenly one day he said, okay, it's time we go. And that was it. The harvest was coming in. And that's how it is at the end of the age. Okay, God runs his hand, the Father, and the Son runs his hand through humanity and says, not today, not today. Father, hold off, not today. One day, the scroll will be opened. John, when prophesying of Jesus' full ministry, says this, his winnowing fork is in his hand to, gather his, to clear his threshing for and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus, speaking of himself in one of his parables, says this, The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And John sees this scroll and he weeps and he weeps and he weeps because no one is found worthy to open it. No one can bring closure. Uh, You might think this is a bit strange, but I've seen it written across the face of pretty much every mother-to-be who is eight and a half months pregnant. Oh, get this baby out of me! You know, it sounded, you know, it felt so comfortable at the beginning and towards the end it's like, oh, I'm carrying around a massive weight. And they're longing for closure. Longing for fulfillment. Longing for everything to be wrapped up. And they're looking for someone. John's looking for someone to wrap up this age. He's saying, come on, there must be someone who can wrap up this age so we can begin the real thing. You see, the real thing, the uh, the reason that John's upset is because he perceives, as everyone, when they look from a heavenly perspective, perceives that this that we are living in is not it. This is nine months' gestation before the real thing begins. One day it will be closed and everything will begin. And if you think this is it, you're going to be really, really happily surprised. Okay, This is just what we see at the best of God and and his blessings upon his church is just a taste, a foretaste of the glories to come. How many of you have been in a situation where you've rung someone and you thought to yourself, uh, you, you said, um, can I talk to someone? I need someone to get me an appointment. The doctors. Oh, uh, you're talking to the wrong, dis- the wrong appointment. You're talking to the wrong department. So let me give you a number. Write it down. You've already been on the phone for you know, six hours, whatever. And you ring the new number. They like, Oh, no, we don't have the authority to do that. This is the number you to give. And they give you the number that you've already spoke to the first time. And you're backwards and forwards. And there's a desperation in your heart. Give me someone with authority. Give me someone that can give me the answer I need. And this is the longing that's in, God's, in, in John's heart. This is why he weeps. And then let's have a look at the lamb. This is a weird looking creature, isn't it? And an angel, the angel says to him, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So what, first of all, why is Jesus that's who we're talking about here. Why is he the lion of the tribe of Judah? Why does John refer to him, or the angel refer to him, as the root of David? This is another thing that I want to make clear to you from the book of Revelation. Sometimes people spend a lot of time in the book itself and never venture into the rest of scripture. When John wrote Revelation, he wrote it to wrap up the Bible. Okay, so whenever he's talking, a lot of the time he quotes from the book of Daniel. He quotes from Ezekiel. He quotes from Old Testament scripture because for him, the, the the one sitting on the throne in the middle of heaven is not just someone who's appeared in the last book. It's someone that has been there right from the beginning. So he refers to the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Where does that come from? It comes from Genesis forty nine. Okay, right at the beginning. This is uh, Jacob prophesying over his sons or blessing his sons. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the one comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. So, Jacob prophesying over his son Judah, he says, out of you is going to come a ruler and he will be the ruler over the people of Israel. And until, and even when that's finished, he will then receive dominion over the whole world. So that's why um, the angel calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let me read you another one from Isaiah 11. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as the banner for his peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, although you are small among the tribes of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Literally in Hebrew, whose origins are from before time began. So there's a looking, as John looks back over the scriptures and over history, he's looking at the lamb seated on the throne. This is Jesus, the one who has always uh, first of all, he see, you know, he's hearing about a lion. And when he looks at the throne, he sees a lamb looking as though it had been slain. And the oddness of this is it, it's, it's a bit tame to say in, in English, it looks like it's been slain. It says a butchered lamb in the center of the throne. This is not pretty, is it? So what does John see when he looks for the la- lion? He looks at a butchered lamb, which speaks to us of the Passover. The fact that Jesus was the lamb, the Passover lamb, the one slain and then whose blood was painted over the lintels so that the angel of death saw the blood and passed over. The one who God, J- John sees is both a lion and a lamb. Now, let me try and illustrate this to you. I've done it here before, but I'm going to do it again because I, I kind of find this helpful See, when I look at scripture all the way through from beginning to end, I see three rulers. God made Adam to be a ruler. It says here, what is man, this is Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him a ruler over the works of your hands. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a ruler, but I think of, I've only got one straight one left something straight so if this is adam all of creation was meant to be judged against adam adam was meant to rule over the world and keep it on a par the problem is is something happened to adam this pete you bored I'll, get, I'll use you in a minute. Okay, I just need your help. So this is what we become like. And the problem is, is you try judging creation by that. What happens is creation gets screwed up. So Adam's sin and Eve's sin, and their children were born like this because they had no right to, no ability to pass on any straightness into humanity. They were born corrupt, and therefore you quickly see murder and all kinds of stuff beginning to burst out in the world as a result of human sin. Now, you can, if you like, try and straighten this up. Pete, give it a go. Try and straighten it, okay? <laughs> just just see how he does. How are you getting on? You're all right. Yeah. <laughs> getting there. Okay, if we, if we gave him a few hours, <laughs> <laughs> do you reckon you'd be able to do it? Uh, it'll take a long time. Yeah, it'll take a long yeah, time, a long okay. Time. A long time. Not perfect. Getting there. And sometimes you might look at yourself. Can I borrow it back just a second? You think... Well, that's not too bad. I'm pretty straight. Okay, at least against Hitler or something like that. But, but actually, you know, or Pol Pot or anyone like that, you just think, well, you know. But the problem is, the pressure of trying to sort ourselves out doesn't work, does it? We can't straighten ourselves up. And so God gave us another ruler. He actually gave it to Moses. He gave us a different ruler. It had 10 increments on it. And said, you want to know what straight is? Measure yourself against that. Sorry, Pete. Look, I can see daylight through there. (laughs) (laughs) He gave us a law. It's impersonal, and it doesn't help to straighten us. In fact, it just makes us realize how screwed up we are. And if God had only sent two rulers into the world, we would be screwed. But in the fullness of time... God sent his own son into the world. He sent the lamb, the lion, straight as a die. But there's something else about this lion. He's also a lamb. And the lamb says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come, take part in me. is meant to work. That's why you have a carbon fibre tube. Okay, I'm going to break it. You get the point. If it was bigger. I, in Christ, am righteous. See, the lion is the lamb and the lamb is the lion. And only he is worthy to open the scroll. Because only he has provided a way for people like me to come, to be buried in him, and to measure up against God's eternal purpose. And in him, both righteousness and justice meet. And I become the righteousness of God in Christ. So where does this leave us today? Well, it leaves us as people either in Christ or outside of Christ. If outside of Christ, it means that we stand twice condemned because we no longer, we don't measure up to the law, but we can't measure up to Christ as well because we won't submit ourselves to him. The one who rejects Christ is twice condemned, first by the law and secondly by the message of the gospel, which was intended to save. But where does it leave us today? And this is the bit that I really wanted to come to. You see, the lion becomes the lamb. He who is revealed as our judge becomes our salvation. The debt is paid, the guilt removed, the deal settled. Aslan lays upon the great rock and surrenders himself to our fate. He dies and we live. But is the lion slain, the king killed? No, for he's raised forever, never to die again. The fierce ruler, the judge of all the earth is no longer against us, but he is for us the same righteous rage that burns against our sin is now directed on our behalf against all who would condemn us. He is the great lion standing over us and roaring against the enemy. If God is for you, who can be against you? The lion is always the lamb, and the lamb is always the lion. It says here, he has seven horns. That means that it's a symbol of authority. He has complete authority. There is no one that can argue with him. Do you know when Jesus makes a decision, there isn't one voice in heaven or earth that will disagree with him? When he says it is so, Satan has nothing to say. He has complete authority. His throne, his dominion is over every throne, over every power, over every principality. None may gainsay him. He has seven eyes. He has complete vision. There is nothing that you or I have ever thought, said or done that he hasn't seen intimately. Do you know, you can't plumb the depths of your own sin, but he has seen it from the very greatest to the very least and he has paid with his own blood every last offense. It is settled for those that are in him. There's nothing left out. He has complete vision. There are things that you know that he knows about you that you don't even know about yourself. But because he lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, this is Hebrews 7, Therefore, he is able to save completely seven those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. How would you feel? How would you feel if you got up in the morning, you were lying in bed feeling blooming awful and thinking, oh no, what am I going to do and you know struggling with yourself? And next door, you could hear someone praying and you kind of tuned in and they were praying with great passion and vigor and verve and you, you listen and you realize they were praying for you. Would you be encouraged? Yeah? Now imagine that they just didn't stop, they were praying and praying and praying. Would you be encouraged? And then imagine that you recognize the voice. Is God's own son kneeling before the throne of the Father, pleading on your behalf? Would you be encouraged? The Lion stands over you. The lion that is the lamb has lost none of its ferocity. And it is precisely this that turns a fearful sinner into a fearless saint. He has come to understand that the wrath of God is now set in his defense against the forces of evil. The accused is now set free and the accuser stands in the dock judged. Let me finish with a little story. Some time ago when I was younger... I don't know which zoo it was, I think it was a zoo in Florida. There was a, a, a young lad fell into the gorilla's cage. The gorillas were down and there was a kind of a bar up here, and somehow he climbed over, I think he was three years old. Now, if you know anything about silverback gorillas, they're terrifying creatures. And everyone was desperately trying to get this boy out. They were trying to get him out without climbing in there. and. Um, you know, there were screams and the camera crews were there. And, and, and this one lone silverback noticed this boy and came towards him. And they got closer and closer and they were, you know, people were filming. They were absolutely terrified. And this gorilla picked him up, held him in his arms and held him against her chest. And it was a mother gorilla. And any other gorilla that came near, and there were many, she roared her defiance at them. That baby was safer than he could be in any human arms. That's how we are in Christ. I wanted to encourage you this morning that the one who is a fierce judge roars in your defense. Because he lives, whoops, it can make you bold. Because he is fierce, it gives us fierceness. I want to do something a little bit weird. I've never done this today. Never done this before. But I'll, I want you to stand with me and sing. Now, I'm going to ask you to sing a song that you probably have never heard. Okay? I hadn't heard it until a few weeks back. It's an old hymn. Okay? It's just simply called Because He Lives. Now some of you are going, oh yeah, I know that one. That shows how old you are. Okay? <laughs> so, but I want us just to stand, as it were, and worship. But I want to leave you with this. He lives. Do you live in him? Is he yours? Is he your lion? Is he your lamb? Because if he's your lion and your lamb, there is nothing, nothing, nothing that can stand against you. You may have troubles, but he lives ever to intercede for you. Shall we stand?